You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Welcome to Two Peas in a Podcast, which is my shameless wildcard podcast that allows me to deviate from my strictly business mandate. With me is an author, journalist and columnist for the Daily Telegraph. He also writes for Glamour Magazine, GQL, Harper's Bazaar, Net-A-Porter's The Edit, Standpoint, The Spectator, Russian Vogue and Point de Vue in France and is a regular contributor to ITV's Lorraine. She began her journalism career at publications including The Evening Standard and The Daily Mail. Born and raised in Paris, she has a degree in French and Italian literature from Cambridge is fluent in French, Italian and Russian and known for her articles, opinions and commentaries on women's issues, social etiquette, health, beauty, cars and fashion, as well as her wry views, it says here, wry views on the vagaries of modern life. <laughs> and I'm going to, one, one little bit more. Here we go. Her first book, Harm's Way, described by Grazia as a subtle, sensual, absorbing tale and The Observer as a gripping debut it was published in 2008 and translated into four languages. And her second book, Babysitting George, that was about one of my heroes, George Best, was BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week and nominated for the William Hill 2011 Sports Book of the Year Prize. Celia Walden is international editor at large for The Telegraph. Celia, if you were interviewing me, if the roles were reversed, she'd probably say... My guest today is an obscure podcaster who claims to have a degree in geography from University College London, an institution which he probably occasionally attended. How do you fit all this in? First of all, I would give you a far better introduction than that. And second of all, you make me sound much more exciting than I am. But thank you for that. I particularly like being called Rye. Well, it was on your website, CeliaWalden.com, so either you didn't write it or, or somebody who's is trying to suck up to you uh, did write, write it. Now, we were, the last time we spoke was several years ago when we spoke about politics, and that leads into Brexit, but that's in a moment. We were talking about a chap called Nick Clegg, and Nick Clegg, who, if he was a fabric, he'd be seersucker or needle cord or, or something like that, but he was in the running to be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Of course, sense prevailed in terms of the electorate anyway. Way, and he didn't make it to that exalted position. But maybe if he was in charge today when it comes to Brexit, maybe things would be a little bit different because as an Englishwoman who lives between London and Los Angeles, you're going between Brexit and Trump. It must be very difficult for you. Well, you know you're living in a mad world when the sane place is America and Trump and Britain just seems like some sort of, uh, well, as somebody pointed out the other day, it seems a bit like John Cleese in Clock Clockwise. Do you remember that film? Yes, I do. And um, <laughs> where things just go from bad to worse and at various moments he ends up sort of naked in a ditch covered in cow dung. And, and the key line in it was that he says, I can manage the despair, the despair I can deal with. It's the hope I can't deal with. And I think that's basically how, how Britain is feeling with Brexit at the moment. Yeah, well, if you had any hope, then if you'd been watching television in the last hour or so, and let me point out that we're pre-recording this interview in late afternoon, early evening on Wednesday, the 27th of March. And there's eight things that Parliament, or as they call them these days, lawmakers are going to be voting on tonight. Number one, no deal. Number two, common market 2.0. I don't know what that is. Number three is EEA, EFTA. I don't know what those are. There's number four, customs union. Number five, labour plans. Yeah, right. They don't have any plans. Uh, revoke Article 50 is the other one, and that's to do with um, a petition that was signed or has allegedly been signed by, I think, five or six million people. Number seven, a confirmatory public vote, not a second referendum, but a confirmatory public vote, presumably with a different question. And the last one, Celia, is contingent 
arrangements. I mean, yes. I'm completely fogged. Yes. Well, I think, you, you know, we've now reached a situation where the people discussing it on TV don't know what is going on. And those flow charts that used to be in the papers every day, where you'd have a little arrow pointing down to another little box explaining what happens in this eventuality, it's just, it's all gone because anything goes. Yeah, it does. And anything goes when it comes to a mischievous old um, old fella in Europe, in Brussels, uh, Mr. Tusk or Tusk. He has just yes, said yes. in the last half hour, he says, you can't betray the six million who signed the petition. Of course, you can betray them because the petition itself uh, cannot be verified. But there is un undoubtedly a whole new group of people that didn't vote in 2016, i.e. young people that are suddenly saying to themselves, well, we don't like this and we are the future. Is that a valid argument for a second referendum? I do think there's a very valid argument about the second referendum, and Tony Blair has actually been very good on this, although it's a bit rich coming from him, given he, he's part of the reason we're in this mess. Yes. Um, but my theory was always, because, you know, millennials didn't, didn't vote, which goes without saying, but if you explain to them that from as of a month's time or, or whenever it's actually going to happen now, the second they leave Britain to go on a day trip to Paris, they will all be rushing to vote and say no 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 we don't want this it would literally it would just swing the whole thing but nobody told them <laughs> Well, it, was a, you are. it was a clum um, it was a clumsily worded referendum. I've never voted for anything in my life because I don't believe in democracy and I don't believe I have the knowledge to determine other people's future. But that's just my own ideology. But for, I would have said, shall we stay or should we leave? And on the other hand, if we do stay, then we should renegotiate the terms of us remaining. I think there should have been something a little bit more cerebral instead of just get out or, or not get out because it was handled so badly. It was handled so badly and also not just badly but fraudulently in terms of voters being lied to. So various things like, I mean, immigration. So with statistics recently saying that there were less and less Europeans in Britain since the referendum, but more and more from Arab states who had come over. So everything that a lot of people will have voted for, it's gone completely the other way. Okay. Um, well, we're going to know in the next, uh, probably actually by the time this podcast is uploaded, as they, as they say, it, it's going to be out of date. But I don't want to ask you yes. your political preferences or your leanings, but it's a, an, okay. in, an intensely personal <laughs> view and issue, and you can tell me to go and jump in the lake, but are you a Remainer or a Brexiteer, Celia? I am a Remainer, but I actually work for a Brexit paper. So I don't really get the chance to discuss my views in the paper I write for. But uh, I did vote Remain, yes. Mm. Okay, well then we have something in common at least. Um, <laughs> you divide your time between London and Los Angeles and we've, we've spoken about uh, the rock and the hard place issue of Brexit versus Trump. How do you reconcile yourself to the fact that you live in a country that is ruled, or at least uh, a puppet ruler, Donald J. Trump? Well, Donald Trump has just been ruled a, a virtual saint, hasn't he? Apparently, from well, from what he says, anyway. <laughs> um, he seems to be thrilled with the way the Mueller investigation went, and uh, although he has a, a particular patient of, uh, of that sort, doesn't he? And actually. I was sitting next to a businessman, I won't say who it was, the other night for dinner, who had worked for years with Trump. And he said, 
that the most extraordinary thing about him, even in business, was that he just completely chose to disregard facts. He had no interest in them. And so you would try and tell him, well, you know, on the other hand, this is what happened last year with such and such a company. Or, and he just had this sort of arrogance when it came to facts where he would just disregard all of them and not listen to any of the arguments, the factual or statistical arguments being given. Yeah, there was an interesting piece in the, one of your newspapers called The Independent, and it, it gave a sort of psychological analysis as to why his main voter base actually listens to him. And it's because he repeats, he repeats and repeats the lies so often that it actually gets into your head and you start believing it yourself, which is a, a sort of simplistic argument. But I think he believes himself as well. I really think he believes himself. I think he goes to bed at night and says, yes, um, the Mueller report, which took two yeah. years to compile and is about um, a thousand yards long if you, you stacked every piece of paper on top of each other. But he, it's condensed into four pages. And because it's nice and digestible for Mr. Trump, he, he can probably manage to read four pages. Well, I don't know about that. I expect somebody reads it to him. Or maybe they have it made up into a kind of bath book, one of those ones with very, very large writings. <laughs> but I but I do think that I do think he will be re elected. I think if there were any doubt, that is now um gone, I'm mm. afraid. Um there's just no yes, there's nobody who is sort of at the moment a sort of a, a valid contender. And I think that the problem is the more people on social media sort of rise up and, and, and the supposed elite become anti-Trump, the more his supporters um, see him as a, as a great thing. So they're basically fueling the fire. I think what might happen ahead of 2020 is that the stock market intervenes and the economy intervenes and the US will go into recession and the stock market will behave accordingly yes. and come down. And that may stuff him up a little bit because jobs won't be created at the rate they are at the moment, i.e. 200,000 to 220,000 per month, which is what he's been used to. Something will happen because a man, yes. like, a man like this can't prevail, surely. Well, I, I think it, 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 won't, it was never going to be Russia. It won't be women. But I think you're absolutely right. If it's going to be something, it will be financial because that is that's what Americans really mind about, you know. And it's wonderful that they that they mind so much about uh, success, and uh, that's one of their core values. Um, but I think, uh, you know, he was seen as the person, even though it was obviously completely wrong. The idea that you could turn around a country's finances sort of in about two months. Um, but but I think you're right. If it all starts going downhill, then he'll be in trouble. Yes, and it will start going downhill because he deserves it. Celia, if you had to live in one of the places that you you currently divide your time between, would it be Los Angeles or London? Because I've always seen you, as I said in a message to you a couple of days ago, I've always seen you as more of a Kensington and Chelsea kind of woman rather than a Los <laughs> Angeles type of woman. I'm leaning towards London. Well, you say that. I Actually, Brexit has made me want to be anywhere but here i have to say oh because uh, and by here i mean london because i because i just i don't like, one thing i've always hated is a closed mentality and an insular mentality the thing about americans that always hits me particularly when i go back and forth in the way that i do is the positivity and the total lack of cynicism actually oh, yeah. um and and i find cynicism just a really corrosive and also boring you know reaction to life and it's just quite nice at the moment to get out of uh, sort of cynical, insular Britain and be in America where 
um, where, you know, there is always a sort of a looking, a feeling of looking to the future in a really positive way. Well, so, yeah, I suppose if you could combine the two and uh, go back to good old London where there are 500-year-old pubs and um, exactly. steeped in history and enjoy that a little bit, and as soon as somebody becomes cynical, you say, right, I'm off on the, on the plane to get a bit of sunshine and optimism, that would be, <laughs> that would be the, the ideal life. I would, it would. You, you would need to have the British wit and you would need to have exactly British pubs and fish and chips. Yes, and also British fashion. And I have to end this chat that we're having on something that is a, a very pressing matter indeed. When I was in my late teens and early 20s at university in London, I used to know a few th things about fashion. Now, you're a fashion writer, so I have to take advantage of speaking to you. <laughs> I only speak to you once every couple of years or something. <laughs> no, you're, you're an expert in fashion. You're a fashion guru. You're a fashion wow. writer. Now, I used to know where to go. I used to know where to go in the King's Road, in Bond Street, in South Moulton Street, uh, Covent Garden, even some of the markets in Camden. I used to know where to go. And more importantly, I used to know what to buy. Now, I'm going to tell you now that Jeremy Clarks and your husband and myself are around about the same age. I'm taller than both of them, slimmer and better looking than, wow. than, bo than both of them. But the point is, even with those advantages, I don't know what to do anymore. Can I wear jeans? Where do I buy clothes? It's all so, so confusing. And you th I think you've described shopping as a disease. I've, I caught it years ago, but um, now the disease is becoming corrosive. In other words, you used early on. What do I do at my age in terms of fashion? Please tell me. Well, um, I think you need to be very careful with jeans at this point. I, my husband Piers, I only, I only allow him to wear one particular brand and not even brand but style of jeans uh, okay. in, a in a particular shade. Not the skinny ones, right? Good Lord, no, please. Uh, no, no, it's very, but jeans have become a very, very uh, dodgy area, I'm afraid, mm. for a man of over 50. And uh, you. Yeah, so you just, you just, you need to go plain all the way and definitely not go for any of the low slung or those terrible sort of jeggings that people seem to wear. Um, <laughs> and I, would, I, I think Liberties is the place for you, which sounds very old-fashioned, but, you know, it's, it's, it, for male fashion, it's very, very high up there at the moment. Definitely not the King's Road because you'll walk out of there with a pair of orange cords, and, and by the way, that look is over. Of course it is. Um, <laughs> was it ever under? Um, so I'll go, up, I'll go up Regent Street next next time I'm there. And the final question is to do with male cosmetics and male beauty products because I have yes. to say that I'm a sucker for an advertisement about eye cream or facelifting cream or something. Oh, and I currently... I currently bung this gloop on my eyes called... Uh, it's made by a French company which has a cult following called Philorga. Oh, very good, Philorga. Oh, Thanks I'm very, very impressed, Lindsay. Thank yes. You. Yes, yes, well, I, I, I do my best. But, I mean, should men, men that are as vain as me and your husband and Jeremy Clarkson, should we be using these sort of things? Well, actually, men are lucky because they have much thicker skin and so it doesn't age as, uh, obviously, mm. as female skin. But, um, again, around your age, yes, you should be looking in a, in a, a daily moisturiser with an SPF. Here we um, go which I hope, <laughs> yeah. um, oh, uh, but that's pretty much all you need, I think. Just a good, good moisture with an SPF, that'll do you. 
Thank you. I can't believe we ended this conversation talking about moisturisers, eye creams and SPFs. I mean, extraordinary. Yes, exactly. I'm sorry about the quality of uh, the, the, the connection, Celia, but thank you so much for taking time to speak oh. to us. Um, Celia Walden is International Editor-at-Large at the UK's Telegraph newspaper, and that was two peas in a podcast. That podcast was proudly brought to you in association with sharenet.co.za.